Welcome to the Film Coterie. I'm Roger. And I'm Adam. And this is episode number 79. But it's not 1979. It's 1969. The end of an era. Yeah. In our Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Farewell and The Art of Self-Defense, we've got a jam-packed show on the film Coterie. Yeah, this is funny. All three movies you just named are not your typical summer movie. These are more in line with what you'd see released in the fall. And I don't mind this. This kind of actually gives you a nice break, I think, from the summer blockbuster cycle. Well, Adam, can I just say it this way? As rough as this summer has been, from my perspective, it's good to have these movies to talk about. Yeah. Oh, man. So what's up, my friend? It's been uh, a couple weeks, and but we're back in the studio here. What's been happening? Uh, this weekend, I'm just prepping for Gen Con. I, I leave on Wednesday, and I'll be back the Sunday following. But it's a very fun board game convention, if you're not aware of it. The largest in North America, I do believe. Yep, absolutely. And uh, kind of getting back into the swing of going to the movies. And I have some real blind spots still. I have not seen Toy Story 4. I have not seen Lion King I mean, I have a couple big blind spots. What is there? I'm trying to think if I've missed anything else big release wise. I think we've seen, I've seen everything else, but man, I just feel like I, um, the summer has slipped by and man, I've missed some movies, you know. Well, I mean, we had a really light July in terms of official screenings from July 4th to now. It's been kind of a dead period. And now we're heading into a run of them again. Yeah. But there was almost nothing there for a while. Yeah, but it's good to it's good to get get the email and see that there's a movie just about every week now. Well, before this one, remember our last screening didn't even start. We sat in the theater for Spider Man <laughs> yes. for an hour and twenty minutes before oh. they called it. And I felt bad. We won't say who that was, but I felt bad for the. It was the rep's very first screening. Yeah, that's a that's a oh. bad hand of cards to be handed to anybody. That was yeah. a, it was the theater's fault and not the PR's fault. It wasn't her fault at all, and. Bless her heart, she uh, did her best she could, but man, when the press start leaving pissed off, it's not a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but you know what? I am I am excited. Um, if this is your first time listening to the Film Coterie podcast, we're just a general movie podcast. We see a little bit of everything. I, I think it would be safe to say that your passion and love is horror, Mm-hmm. And mine is more classic films, and unfortunately, we don't ever talk about those. We meet in the middle. Yeah, so we meet in the middle, and we go see stuff coming out, you know, right now. So, absolutely. I- I'm excited about our lineup. Um, I'm excited to talk about the ninth film, uh, the penultimate, p- is that how you say it? Yeah. Film for Quentin Tarantino, supposedly. If he sticks to his rule of 10, that he's going to direct 10 and retire, we're we're very close to the end. So, but he might wait 15 years to do the 10th one. You never know. <laughs> and if rumors hold, he's directing a Star Trek movie. So that would be a very strange note to end on. Would that not be crazy? A rated R Star Trek movie? Would, would not Trekkies, Trekkers, however you want to call us, are, are some of their heads going to explode if Tarantino does a well, movie? It just shocks me. He hasn't had that kind of studio control ever that I'm aware of over a film because that's a big license. That's a huge deal. They're not just going to let him do whatever in a Star Trek movie. And Quentin Tarantino would have to deal with notes. Notes coming down from on high about what maybe he can or can't do. Yeah, I, I can't see that. I can't see that flying. You know. But, it, hey, I would like to see. I, I think he made a few comments that he was not real happy with the way Khan was handled in the reboot. Yes. 
So maybe we give him a, a multiverse, let him do his own con movie or some version of a that. A what if movie. A what if movie would be great. I, that would be fun. The only thing we know, know for certain <laughs> is that on the bridge, uh, a green alien would probably take her shoes off and put her feet up on the dash. <laughs> But of course, you know. His fetish is on full display now. He's not even trying to hide it. He is not. Well, anyway, we're dancing around Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Why don't we, why don't we take a listen in, Adam, to a little bit of the film? And when we come back, we'll give you our thoughts and our review. This is the Film Coterie Podcast. We'll be right back after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hey, Randy. So you still the wreck, huh? Still here. You in there? Yeah, just knock. Just, just look, just, just just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it gonna hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then they gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't. I, please, look, I, look, Randy, I, I'm asking you to help. Man. If, the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know? And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me, but... but, but... That's not the case, and you know it. He's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. All right, we are back, and now it's time to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the newest Quentin Tarantino film, written, directed by Quentin Tarantino, obviously. And it's showing off his love for this very specific era of film. Times are changing, the culture is on full display, and we see what it's like in 1969 Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, man, nobody, no, nobody knows how to grab hold of genre specific times more than Tarantino. He 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 loves the 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 colors, the lighting, the music, the the, the feel and and you really uh, I'll say this right up front from the move with the movie, you really feel like you're seeing the end of the 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 hard 60s and the, and, the, and the new Hollywood birth. He he gets that that comes on in the 70s. Um you know, th- there was a real shift in Hollywood from 19- from the 60s to the 70s with Francis Ford Coppola and uh, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. Polanski. Uh, yeah, Polanski, who's prominent in this. Yes. There was a real shift of, you know, genre kind of went out the window a little bit, and there was a real shift. And so um, there's— and this, this focuses on television, too. This yes. Is, this is television and film, and specifically kind of the aging out of Westerns. Yes. This is the time in Hollywood when Westerns had been moved from film to TV and are now getting ready to enter the spaghetti Western phase. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's lay the groundwork. Um, I don't know if you can even really 
I think if somebody told me the whole movie, it probably wouldn't spoil it for me. We're not going to spoil it. But we're not. Yeah, but we're, we're not, not going to spoil it. It's not like there's. It's a big. You know, it's you. You got to go in cold and not knowing anything. This. This. But let's lay a little bit of groundwork about what is this film? What is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Kind of what is the synopsis of it? Well, let's talk about its form. It's very loose, kind of free flowing, meandering, even. Yes, very meandering western like. It's an exploration of these two characters. You have Leonardo DiCaprio's actor, and you have his stunt double. And not only do they work together on screen, they also have this off screen life together where they're buddies. Right. And they're played by. In professional yeah. relationship. You have a great name, Rick Dalton. That's Leo. You know, that, that he's the Western hero that. that or ha- villain. Or, well, he's playing a villain now. Now, yeah. now he is. But back in the, you know, in the 60s, early 60s, he had the TV show where he was the bounty hunter, and he always brought the bad guy in every week. But huge TV star. Everybody watched him. And now he's aging out, and he's getting, he's starting to play those villain roles and one-offs on FBI and other shows that are going on. Green Hornet. Green Hornet in television. And then Tex... Um, not Tex. Uh, Cliff Booth. Yeah, Cliff Booth is his um, is his stunt double, and they are. It's it's an interesting. You one of the things that stands out is you follow them around, and there's so much that they say with these two characters because one, I mean, you know, uh, Cliff Booth is obviously kind of like the servant errand boy, the guy who's always played second fiddle to Rick Dalton, right? And even there's such a dichotomy when the end of the day, you, you know, one of the things that struck me was you have Rick Dalton lives in Hollywood Hills and on a private drive and, you know, pretty nice house, not a huge house, not a mansion by any stretch of the imagination, but a nicer house. And then you have um, you have you have Cliff Booth driving back to his place. He has to leave Hollywood. And goes out into the desert to an old drive-in and to a trailer behind the drive-in. And so there's all these pictures, these dichotomies that Tarantino sits up over and over and over. And, man, there's just so much to say about this film. I'll say from the beginning, I loved this movie. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I enjoyed it from start to finish. Uh, And it's... It has Tarantino-esque elements in it, some some catchy dialogue, um, long holds and long pauses where um, you're not really sure where things are going to go. But I'll say this: I was this is a mature Tarantino. This is a kind of a grown-up Tarantino. And, sentimental. Yeah, sentimental. That's a great word, Adam, because it's not. There's not quite the amount of, like, Tarantino loves to have long dialogue with tension under the surface and tension building. There's not as much of that. It's more of the, I'm going to reflect on the golden time for me of what Hollywood was, what that studio was. And I'm going to show you the good, bad, and the ugly, you know, pun intended for the time period of what Hollywood was like then. And I'm actually going to steal this quote. I, I actually saw it on Twitter from Kim from the uh, Nightmare on Film Street podcast. She described the movie as the lazy river ride of Quentin Tarantino films, where that you're there for the reason for Tarantino, and you can just sit back and enjoy and go for the ride. Because unless you know the history of this exact moment in time with Sharon Tate, you wouldn't know the structure that this movie is moving towards. Right. This is building towards something. Yes. But you have to be aware of the real history. The movie doesn't really hint at that. 
So it, it is relying on you to have a little bit of the knowledge of the Sharon Tate real life events. Yes, and and it's it's not a spoiler to share the history, right? I mean, no. yeah, we can do that on the yeah. podcast. You know, Marilyn Manson. The reason the guy's in jail. Charles. Oh my God, I did it again, Charles Manson. Charlie Manson. Charlie Manson. The reason he's in prison to this day is because he started a cult, a hippie cult. And he literally convinced these young hippies to go murder Hollywood celebrities. Helter Skelter. He thought the Beatles were speaking to him in prophecy about the race war. And they thought that he needed to start it. So they were making these specific murders and trying to frame people, make it look like the, this magical race war that Charles Manson had thought up had, had started. And a pregnant Sharon Tate was unfortunately one of the real victims. Yeah. The Manson family broke into the house. Roman Polanski was gone. He was filming and they murdered four or five people in his home. Yeah. I mean, just huge tragedy and and, you know, Tate's legacy just gone like that. You know, we don't know what she could have possibly been into the 70s because she was kind of a rising, rising star at the time. So that's what this movie plays around. I mean, Rick Dalton's the neighbor of Sharon Tate. There's hints of what's going on. We see the, the Manson Ranch. We see Charles Manson smile and wave in one scene. But the movie's not spelling out what's going to happen. You, you kind of have to go in with the real knowledge of the real events. Right. And I, I think it would help you if you knew what the real events were to to appreciate what Tarantino's going to do yes. in this film, I, 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 without a doubt. Um, let's talk about, man, so much I want to talk about. Okay, before we get into performances, let's talk about music and his use of the radio and how important it was or how, how much of a prominent role it played in life then versus now, you know? I mean, every time, Tarantino's always great with pop, putting in pop music of the time and then really obscure stuff you've never heard of right. at the time. But for me, it seemed like there was a constant, every scene we turn to is a radio or a record being played. It's just, there's constant music, kind of like you don't get in the car and you have your AM dial and you dial it up to a tune and you head down the road, you know? Thought, thoughts that direction, Adam? Uh, I, I didn't really go down that route with okay. watching the movie. But the music's good. I mean, it's typical good Tarantino soundtrack. And it is certain there's a lot of driving in the movie. Um, Cliff Booth is a driver, so you see a lot of that. Well, I, I, I just find it like, you know, one of the things that struck me with the music and with the movie is that, you know, it was almost like life was done in community back then. You went to the restaurant or you went and hung out or you went to the pool or you went to, you know, it was kind of done and, and you played this music and it was like, now we live in a self-contained bubble of a world and it's, it was just totally different back then. You drove around with your windows down in your radio plane and you picked up a hitchhiker and you, it was just a completely different time. Right. And he, he just shows this in such a, I thought he just really showed it in a great way. Um, moving on then, performances. Let's let's go down the list. Let's start with Cliff, uh, Rick Dalton and, and Cliff Booth, DiCaprio. Um, what did you think of Pitt and DiCaprio, their performances? What was your thoughts? Uh, so for both of them, this is their second Tarantino film. Brad Pitt was in Glorious Bastards. Uh, Leonardo was in Django, Django Unchained. Yep. They have a natural chemistry here. You buy that they're friends instantly. The nice thing is that even though Cliff is just the errand boy, the handyman, all that. You don't really pick up any animosity. No. You don't feel like he's gunning, like, why is he the actor? I'm not. Because he's a good-looking stuntman. People keep bringing that up. You're too yeah. pretty to be a stuntman and stuff like that. 
but they're just friends and you buy the relationship and, and this yeah. stood out to me like the nice guys i instantly thought of the nice guys after i saw this movie just because it reminded me of that relationship from that film from shane black one of the things they do is they commit a hundred percent to the role and you instantly feel like these guys, like you said, have worked together forever. There's a great chemistry between the two of them. And DiCaprio normally will get a one big scene where he can go like, kind of like batshit crazy. I, I don't know how else to describe it, you know. And he gets a mini version of that in this movie. Not nearly what he what he did before, but um, his role is, I I found his role very comedic. And, you know, and, and I just kept laughing at his character, even though my heart felt for the character. You know, this aging star who's an emotional wreck, you know. He's facing becoming obsolete. Yes. He feels like he's down to his last sunset to write off. Yes. Into an and it's like there's a scene in the movie where he plays against a young act, a young actress and she gives him a compliment. And it's a heartfelt, true compliment. Right. And it just about kills him. It just like tears him up and the the audience just busted out laughing because they felt for him as well, you know? And I got to say though, for me, Brad Pitt's performance was the top of the whole movie. Yeah. For me, he, he was hands down. He should get the best. He should be the lead actor, the best actor. There's a subtlety and a nuance to his performance that is excellent. And there's the last act, the act number three, and it's not even a traditional three-act movie. No, it's not. It's it's not. Let me but, just say this. When the finale comes, you'll know it's there. The yes. finale is very entertaining. And The finale, he just steals the show completely and had me in stitches. I have not laughed that hard in the theater in a long time. Um, I, just, I just think both these guys just lights out good. I mean, it's just, it's both of them at the top of their game. Tarantino at the top of his game. I'm telling you, this movie is shooting right up near the top of my list yeah. for the best. It may be the best film he's ever made. You know, I mean, it's hard to dethrone my sentimental my sentimental feelings for Pulp Fiction, but I'm telling you, this movie is right up here. It's it's him on his A game. It's a mature Quentin Tarantino. Love these performances. What about some of the hey, other let me performances? Say this. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people put out their lists. This movie's dividing people because I've, I've seen it in top three for Tarantino. I've seen it in bottom three. I've seen it in the middle. It's going to be somewhere else for everybody. And you know what? It's hard to judge a Tarantino on one viewing. You know, you may see this again and like it even more. It may drop a little bit because it does run long. It is two hours and 40 minutes. Yep. So, and we've only had the one viewing so far. And, you know, I just don't know where it's going to settle. Yeah. In no, the overall. Fair enough. Works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about Margot Robbie. As Sharon Tate. What do you think of her performance? See, all right. Before I saw this movie, there was some hubbub from Cannes. Uh, a journalist had challenged Quentin Tarantino on kind of minimizing this role and saying that she didn't have any lines. He was just pushed off to the side. I think she works really well in this film, but we never really got to know Sharon Tate. She was murdered after just a few films. We know her as just this beautiful, lovely person. <laughs> You know, no one ever said a bad thing about Sharon Tate that I've ever heard. Yeah. And that's what Robbie brings to the role is that she's just generally sweet. It's a neat scene of seeing her go to the movies and watch her own film. Beautiful. And react yes. to the crowd enjoying her work. There's an innocence and a beauty. And there's a physicality to her performance that is wonderful in this film. Um, Sharon Tate's real sister cried at this performance. She was on the set. Tarantino had invited the family 
and they were over the moon for seeing well, Margot Robbie play this character. I, I tell you, there's this, like you said, there's the theater scene, and it is a heart, heart moment. It is a sweet moment. There's a lot of sweet moments in this film. You know, there's still edge, and there's still, there's still, you're going to get some pretty intense violence, but there is a, a maturity or something a little bit different. This is a different kind of Tarantino film um, than, than I have seen before. Uh, I thought Margot Robbie's performance was great. Um, interesting enough, though, you know, Rick Dalton, when it shows him, it, he talks about himself maybe a, an opportunity he had to play in a Steve McQueen film. And when they flash back, they impose him into yeah. the film as if that's what he would have looked like. And, and you see Rick Dalton playing Rick Dalton on the screen. When, when, when they go to show Sharon Tate in, in her movie performance, it's actually Sharon Tate we see. Yeah, this was a conscious decision, I think, to include the real Sharon Tate into this because her career was cut so short. And I think that's beautiful. I, I really liked that a lot and thought it was that it was great. Um, you know, the list is incredible. Al Pacino is in this. Timothy Oliphant is in this. Dakota Fanning is in this. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell is in this. Um, and then you get Harley Quinn Smith is in this. Maya Hawke is in this. Austin Butler is in this. Your younger kids. It's like all the kids of Hollywood yeah. folks are in this movie, you know. And that's kind of relevant, too, because this movie is very much about the changing of the guard, you oh. know, Hollywood moving forward. So I think it was, again, a conscious decision by Quentin Tarantino to include some of these. So let's switch gears. I want to ask you your thoughts this direction. A lot of people are saying that the hippies represent new Hollywood and, you know, Brad Pitt and, and DiCaprio represent old Hollywood and Tarantino's distaste for new Hollywood because of how they're treated in this film, okay? And so what, what, do you, what, what are your thoughts? Did, did you pick up on any of that? Or what are your, that he's having a commentary about how much he dislikes, because uh, the hippies are not viewed very well, and they're, they're, they're not viewed very well at all. They're not shot well. They're not, uh, they're, they're spoken, you know, oh, they're dirty, and they're grimy, and they're a nuisance, and they're, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I think they just represent change. You know, Quentin's not a guy that's going to like change. I mean, he he's never going to make a PC film. His values come from the Grindhouse era. You know, violence, exploitation. Those are always going to be elements of his movies. Those are the movies he wants to make. And the counterculture was changing Hollywood at the time with the hippies and everything else. So I, it, it may just be a generational thing. Generations always look down. Right. Uh, what's coming up behind him, and then and Tarantino might be feeling some of that too, because now when this movie comes out, he's gotten more negative press than I've ever seen before. Yep, from this Me Too era and everything else, cancel culture. They're they're taking some hard runs at Quentin, and this he's got a distaste for that, obviously. So I think sure. it's just mainly a cultural shift, and that he he fears change. Okay, overall thumbs up though. Oh, absolutely! I, I highly recommend this movie. Yeah. Anything else, Adam? You want to say about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I too absolutely recommend it as well. I would just caution that it's long, and right when it might feel like it's just going to go on forever, we get to the finale. If you're paying attention, you'll know that the dates are building towards a certain event. Yes. And that's what that's where the payoff is. Awesome. Okay, speaking of culturally shifting, um, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's get into the farewell, which is a 
a 180 degree turn a different direction. That's about sentimentality in that one, too. Okay, so we have a connection there, but definitely a cultural shift, right? Yes. So let's take a let's take a quick listen in to um, the farewell, and when we come back, you'll get our thoughts. This is the Film Coterie Podcast. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. The man is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. We have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Do you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, then we'll find out right away. All right, and that was a little sample of The Farewell. And Adam, you, I unfortunately did not get a chance to screen this, but you were able to make it out. And so um, give us a little bit of background. What is The Farewell? And uh, let's explore this film and your thoughts about it. Sure. Uh, I heard about this movie at a Sundance. It made a lot of big waves there. A24 ended up picking it up. And this is the second feature from Lulu Wang. And it's going to make you cry. It's a very beautiful film about saying goodbye to a family member. Okay. Now, the twist on this is this is about a, a, an American Chinese family going back to China to say goodbye to their grandmother. And in that culture, in the Chinese culture, they generally don't tell the older person that they're dying. They share medical advice with the younger generation, but not the older one. Mm. So they've concocted a fake wedding to get everyone back to say goodbye to this grandmother. Wow. And this is based on Lulu Wang's real experience. The movie even opens based upon an actual lie. Okay. Um, so, so how did this, how, how did this play? You know, we are an American audience and, mm -hmm. and, you know, how do you think this will play and did it still connect? You know, you know, what, what was your takeaway from the film? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Aquafina is the lead here. You last saw her in Crazy Rich Asians. She's phenomenal in this film. She actually gets to show some dramatic chops off. And what's really interesting about this film is they're showing these it's one family, but they've been changed. One family moved to America, the other family moved to Japan, and now they're all coming back together to be with their Chinese part of their family. Wow. So you are getting this mesh of cultures that have been yeah. impacted by where they've moved. Okay. And so um, uh, what stood out to you in the film itself? You know, um, was it, how was it shot? You know, what was the sound like? You know, what were some of the things that grabbed, I, I can tell from how we've talked, you really kind of enjoyed this film well, in the sense of is, enjoyment, you know? Yeah, no, this is one of the best films of the year. I'll say that. I'm, you're going to see this on a lot of people's top 10 lists, I think. The film has such a smart script because you have these actors that have to perform in all these scenes knowing a secret, right? You'll see them tear up in the background. They're all saying goodbye without saying goodbye. Oh, man, that's tough. <laughs> and the grandmother knows something, too. She's suspecting something about her own health, but she doesn't know that everyone else knows. So she's performing and also saying goodbye in her own way. Without, yeah. If everyone was just open, it wouldn't be a problem. But they're all keeping these secrets from each other. Oh, man, yeah. Whew. It's such a beautiful and comedic film. And I'll say this. You're actually going to leave, while you may have shed some tears during the film, you're going to feel upbeat when you leave. It ends on a very good note. That's great, man. <sighs> wow. Well, I, I'm very disappointed that I missed the farewell. It sounds like it's, it's not out yet. We saw it a little yeah. bit early. I think it hits uh, first week of August, at least here in Columbus and some other markets. It's a slow rollout from A24. 
Okay. But just like I said, such a beautiful film, such a smart script, solid performances all around. It's really neat to see the cultural stuff uh, from over there. And I can't recommend it enough. So A24 is giving us the farewell, and it should be in theaters here shortly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for that. I think I, I think I will definitely I will def it will definitely land in my viewing before the year is out. And so I don't know if I'll get a chance to make it to the theater, but I definitely will see it before we get to our top ten of two thousand and nineteen. So I will say if you've had a recent loss, this is gonna be a hard movie to see, I think. <laughs> okay. You know, I I would warn that. You sure. know, this, this is dealing with a lot of emotional yeah. family issues, so yeah. I hate the word trigger warning, but um, yeah. there's these issues in the film that may affect you more so if you have suffered a recent family loss. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's going to be the farewell. Adam says big thumbs up. He recommends it, and I'm going to check it out as well. Let's uh, – one more film to go over, and this is one for us to talk about because I think you and I walked out of the theater – with different impressions of the film. we That doesn't usually happen to us. No, we always agree on everything. And uh, the film is called The Art of Self-Defense. Uh, why don't you, uh, we'll ha let's take a little listen in to the film. And then when we come back, we'll give you our thoughts. This is the Film Coterie Podcast. Karate is a way of communicating. Ask me a question. What are your plans for the weekend? I'm going to do some grocery shopping. And rent a film. To watch in the comfort of my home. Home. Did that answer your question? I want you to tell me why you're here. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of other men. <laughs> I want to be what intimidates me. You came to the right place. I'm taking my first class today. Your new white belt? Is that the first belt color? White is before color. You haven't earned color yet. Today's lesson. To kick with your fists and punch with your feet. That makes perfect sense. All right, we are back, and we're here to talk about the last film for this episode, and that will be The Art of Self-Defense. Yeah. The second feature from Riley Stearns. And we have a different take on this. Yes, we so, do. I think we need to set it up how we actually saw this movie. Well, look, 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 before we do that, stars Jesse Eisenberg, um, and the, the the this is a dark comedy. Darker than dark. Whatever Yes, I saw in Kickstarter, someone was selling the ultimate black paint that was blacker than black. This comedy is darker than that paint. Exactly. And so you need to know that the premise is straightforward. A man is attacked randomly. He's kind of a... Maybe not the most assertive, strong man you would ever find. And he joins a karate dojo to try to empower and better himself. And he literally has went from one bad situation to one a hundred times worse. It very much explores toxic masculinity. Yes, absolutely. So lay down. But we saw this in a very unique environment. And for... On a rare occasion, we came out with complete, two completely different yeah. vibes from this movie. This movie's getting a lot of buzz. I'll say that up front. And a lot of these um, festivals it's played at, it's been a huge hit. Right. No, it's uh, 130 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's sitting at 85%. Yep. Uh, I think the crowd scores around 65% with 400-some reviews. And 
we saw this in House 80 Gateway, which is in Columbus. That's a little 15-seat theater. Which I love. I love House 8. But not maybe for a comedy or a dark comedy. Because, go ahead, tell them what happened, Adam. This was such a weird situation. This was sold out. Yeah. Every seat was full, so all 15 seats or whatever were full. All 15. Nobody but me thought this film was funny in the theater. And that made it uncomfortable for me to laugh because I was the only one who was laughing. This theater was silent. This is the quietest I've ever seen a comedy played in a theater. Nothing landed for this crowd except for me. Yeah. Um, it was eerily silent. Yes. It was uncomfortable. I mean, there were a couple times where there was a slight, I had, I felt the urge to chuckle and wouldn't because it was, <laughs> it was so, it was so freakishly I know. quiet. That's the thing. Had, had a fantastic fest crowd seen this, they would have been on the floor laughing at this film because it's so awkward. This is very much in the vein of Greasy Strangler with a lot of the dialogue or even uh, Come to Daddy, which hasn't come out yet. I had the chance to see that and, um, Overlook. Right. So it's awkward, and it was just dead silent in this theater. So yeah, that probably affected how people witnessed it. I mean, with comedies, it, yeah. was, it was sent to die in this unfortunate theater. Now, now for me, um, it just did not hit at all. It missed me completely. I don't know. Maybe I would have had a better feeling if it was in a packed house where people were rolling laughing. But th- the comedy just did not strike me as as funny it struck me as attempting to be funny and then you 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 add in a theater that is deathly quiet and small it's like you're seeing this <laughs> yeah. it's like you're at your friend's house right. with five or six of your buddies and and none of them think it's funny and you're stuck for an hour and a half watching a comedy where nobody thinks it's I funny oh it was so weird so this movie sets up really early i thought that this is a weird world um, his answering machine has a message you've never heard before saying you, you only have one message, you know, and, and, and weird things like that. Jesse Eisenberg is operating like he's maybe on the spectrum, but high functioning. He's got a lot of funny lines at work because his coworkers don't like him. Literally until he punches his boss in the throat, which is the first thing he lo- he learns from his kung fu class. Yes, <laughs> he goes thro- to work and he strikes his boss. The dreaded throat punch. <laughs> and then he gets a seat at the table, right? That's... The- I mean, this is why this is so funny to me, that that's how he earns a seat with the other guys at the table. He literally punches his boss in the throat. This is a movie that is literally a sheep in wolf's clothing, right? It's the reversal. He's infiltrated this karate class that are a bunch of goons, and he's going to be their undoing. They don't yeah. even see it coming. They actually, yep. there's such a masculine-driven performance class that the the one talented female has their own dressing room. She can only teach the children. And they put him in that dressing room, right? That's where he's fit to be. Yeah. And he's going to undo the whole thing. Right. That's why I said this is literally a sheep in wolf's clothing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I have to give it, you know, I understand what they're going for. This is a strong message about the ridiculousness of toxic max- masculinity. This is a strong statement about um, just... You know, you know, Je- Eisenberg commits so fully to the role. Everybody does. I love the instructor. Oh, and so, so there are some good performances. I loved uh, the girl that played Anna, um, Amagen Poots or Amagen Poots. Uh, I thought she was she was kind of like the cute tomboy 
kind of, you know, that literally was not going to take anything and was obviously the very best karate person in the in the in the in the dojo. Right. Hands down the best. And just, you know, she's a woman and it's and 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 the sensei comes out and says that because she is a woman, she will never be a black belt. And this is why I mean, they only view her as having the expertise to teach the children. Right. They can't see her for what she is. She gets bypassed her promotion. And then uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character, they only like him because he can do accounting. And he's doing that for free for them. He's helping them balance their books and right. everything else. I laughed out loud the last time I laughed out loud in this theater um, because it was too uncomfortable to keep laughing is when the instructor, someone asked him what he's doing over the weekend. He does this over-the-top performance of going through all of his moves just to announce he's going to rent a movie from Blockbuster and go home or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and those p- parts are all funny to me. For me, where this movie just went off the rails or fell apart or lost me was when they circled back to his first incident that drove him to the karate dojo. And and it went and it, to me it got kind of I don't know, not ludicrous, but it was just like I had no I didn't understand the motivation for anything that that without revealing what the movie's about, the whole third act, I didn't understand any of the motivations at all, what was going on. And, you know, they just happened to be in a dojo class that has a cremation thing in the back. And st- I mean, it's just weird. That's what I mean. It's like Greasy Strangler levels of weirdness that you just have yeah, to accept. And the, and the movie's telling you that early with the answering machine. I just, yeah, for me, I just didn't buy it. You know, I was just like, ah, oh, this is, you know... If they would have just stayed in the dojo and never let, never showed you anything else around, or maybe the locker rooms in the dojo, I think this would have been a really, really great movie. But they kind of had to add in, oh, but not only is this a mean dojo, and not only is the night class so bad, but we also do this at night. And well, that's, well, that's just it. They're they're selling nonsense. They they yeah. all buy in and believe this, right? They're all true believers of whatever they said. And I think there's such a great payoff because the master that's dead had a one-finger death punch that was magic. Yes. <laughs> and there's such a good payoff in my mind to that. that there really was. I, <laughs> I think it's a, yes. it's a great moment in this film. I, 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 that was the one time I <laughs> wanted to chuckle out loud was when we get that payoff for that. Absolutely. So, that's the thing. I think if you see this movie in a crowd that's into it, I mean, I think this has the chance of kind of becoming a cult hit. In 10 years or so. I mean, yep. I don't doubt it. With the right crowd, this is such a fun movie. And I'm eager to see it again. And, you know, this is one of those ones that's just going to be a guilty pleasure for me. I loved all the performances. The humor worked for me. It was just an awkward environment. Yeah. Uh, for me, most a lot of the humor hit, a lot of the humor worked. I just did not like the last third of the movie. It just fell, it just, it missed for me there. So. Um, that is The Art of Self-Defense, and that's going to wrap it up for our three movies that we're reviewing tonight. Um, why don't we take a quick break and come back, and we'll do our coming attractions section, and we'll let you know what we have on the docket for the rest of uh, August. So this is The Film Coterie. We'll be right back after the music.
All right, and we're back, and it's our final segment. This is our coming attractions, and August is looking a little slow again, a little thin. As always, as always. As always, before we ramp up for the fall and the winter, we're going to get into some big movies in the winter and the fall and the Oscar movies, and Star Wars is looming at the end of the year. So we have some great stuff coming down the road, but what do we have to look forward to in August on the Film Coterie Podcast? Well, next week we have Hobbs and Shaw, which is going to do Gangbusters box office because yep. has The Rock in it. It's Fast and the Furious spinoff. I unfortunately cannot make that screening. So finally I get a little bit of revenge on you for some of the stuff I've seen. You will be going <laughs> to see Hobbs and Shaw, maybe. I am, yep. It's on the docket to go see. So. And if there's time before we get back together, I will see Hobbs and Shaw so we can review it. But there's another film coming out that I know we have a screening coming up for called Ready or Not. And I think this movie looks like a lot of fun. It's Samara yes. Weaving. It has a little bit of shade, maybe a cabin in the woods. There has to be a ritual. <laughs> this family that makes board games has to make the new bride, whoever comes into their family, play a game. It's hide-and-seek, only with weapons. And the trailer is very fun. Lots of over-the-top violence yep. and people watching YouTube yeah. learn how to use a crossbow. And basically, if the bride can survive through the night till she's dawn, in the family. she's in the family. So if they go for it, I think it, this movie would be a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's um, probably better than the Tag movie. We'll see if the hide-and-seek movie is better than the Tag movie. Well, I never saw Tag. You're lucky. You did see Tag? Oh, boy. So yep. anyway, um, but I am looking forward to uh, uh, Ready or Not. So what else? I think there's one more coming up. What, what else is coming up? I've, I've It's totally slipped in my mind what we have coming up here. Um, yeah, for the month. I know Ready, Ready or Not and what else? The Kitchen, maybe? I, I don't know, Adam. What there's else? not much in August. There's not. There's really not. Well, on Hobbs and Shaw, we yeah. mentioned it. That was the other one. So, um, yeah. And then you know, life will change. Kids will go back to school, and and you know, the fall will hit, and then we'll be into a slew of movies every single week. So. The fall kicks off with it, chapter two. Yes, which I, I was, go, you know, I was going into that with trepidation. Did not like what I'd seen in the initial trailer. But the last, the final Comic-Con trailer really sold me. Okay, I, I, I get what they're going to try to do now, you know? And so it looks pretty good. So I'm looking forward to It Chapter 2. And if you're looking for something to stream this weekend, Roger and I are both three episodes into The Boys. It's on Amazon Prime. It's sort of a dark take on superheroes, specifically the Justice League. And it's fun so far. It is violent. It is over the top. And it is based on a run of comic books called The Boys. But, hey, I'd say check it out at this point. I'm a recommendation for it. Yeah, I, I would agree, too. Um, it's it's really dark, and it, it flips comic, it flips uh, superheroes upside down. It kind of reminds me of The Reckoners, the Brandon Sanderson novels, except for the soups in, in The Reckoners are all just bad. Every super— when you Openly get super, bad. Yeah, they're ultimately bad. And— um, uh, they have caused day an apocalypse to occur in the world. Here, the soups all appear to be wonderful heroes engaging in helping and saving humanity. But maybe there's corporate influence and money making and corruption behind it all. So <clears throat> I'm 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 enjoying the enjoying the boys so far. I would recommend it. Yeah, give it a whirl. Let me let us know what you think. So Yep. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Film Coterie Podcast. Adam, how can they find us on the interwebs? Uh, the best place is always Facebook. If you go to facebook.com backslash the Film Coterie, 
We are also on Twitter and Instagram with the same handle. It is at Film Coterie. And we have a website, filmcoterie.com. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the podcast. Get out there, see a movie, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next time on The Film Coterie.